Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatik, sitting here with Aaron Cameron at the Land and Development Conference. You're back doing podcast in person at the conferences, and we could not be happier about it. We have a returning guest. He was a year one of the podcast guest. He slid in right at the end of 2016 to come talk to us about development land. Joining us back today, Jeremiah Shamus, Senior Vice President, Private Capital Investment Group at Collier's. Welcome back. Thanks, guys. Happy to be back. It's been six years. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Almost, I guess, five and a half. Yeah, not not much to talk about in the real estate world since then. You're definitely the longest gap between appearances on the podcast. <laughs> that will put up there. I was joking before we went live too that we lied to get Jeremiah on back in December 2016. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Saying, don't worry, lots of people listen to the podcast. It might have gotten 13 downloads. Six of them were me and Adam just trying to get the numbers up. In, so. in, in later years, it would have picked up. But uh, yeah, the state of the gates would have been very light. Yeah. It's a it's a sign of the friendship you two have because yeah, he yeah. came on in light of the fact that he basically did it for free. Yeah, that was definitely the days of uh, having to lean on friends to come on. So yeah, it's, <laughs> things have improved since then, though. Yeah, <laughs> you know what? Though I, I still had a number of people reach out after that. They were very interested in kind of they didn't really know what development land is. So in effect, it was a resource. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing how much later people will still come and listen to the episodes. It does carry on, especially with something topical like development land. (laughs) Yeah. I also have to comment, your equipment is probably appreciated at a much greater rate than Toronto real estate. (laughs) It's beautiful new equipment. Yeah. If we go back to our early days, obviously this is an audio medium, so nobody can see what we're actually uh, using to record this, but it's a pretty professional looking setup with, you know, big boom arms. Check and- the pictures on Instagram <laughs> or our LinkedIn accounts, right? But back then we had to hunch our shoulders way over, over the mics and uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, you'd, you'd be clamping. You'd hope that it only went for 25 minutes rather than 45 because <laughs> yeah. your back couldn't <laughs> take these it. little spider things. You had to literally yeah. hunch over. You must, you, do you remember that? Oh, now? Remember. Yeah, Jeremiah's quite tall, so he would have <laughs> yeah, particular yeah. felt Our backs are aching by the end of it. Anyway. Anyway, yeah. these are the trial and tribulations of podcasting. Yeah. The behind the scenes look. <laughs> we were in that tiny little room too, I think. Yeah, I know. Look at this. We got a big banner. You got they're like, come on. At in. the land of development real estate forum. This is yeah, big t- this is the show. You, you made it. Yeah. This is the made show. It, boys. Yeah. You made it. What are we here for? What are we doing? Well, I mean, much like the both the podcast and the real estate environment, <laughs> Jeremiah's career has also risen exponentially as well. At the time, back 2016, I think. You were, I don't know, 80, 90% land, something like that, if that makes sense for what you're working on. Now you deal with all investment sales. You're running private capital group out of Toronto, which of course is a pretty lofty uh, position. So yeah, I would say that it's reflected in in your growth as well. So let's talk about what you're doing. Wait, wait, can we just talk about, since he's been on the podcast. Draw that connection. Let's draw the connection to the success that he's had anyway. Keep going. Yeah. (laughs) So that's what happened, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> clearly, the 16 people that listened to that was the, <laughs> the only 16 people that needed to listen to get your career to grow. <laughs> so, Jeremiah, then let's talk about your view of the marketplace. Obviously, now with an expanded you know, investment portfolio that you're working on, and of course, you know, running a team, your ability to shine light in dark corners of real estate would be a lot sharper now than it would have been then. And last time was you know, a great episode. So what are you working on now that you would not have been then? Yeah. So, I mean, back then I was focused on development land sales specifically. We had done some building sales. I started off with a team and eventually grew out on my own. And not long after that, I founded the private capital group and then grew that group 
now to what we are. And what we specialize in is building and land sales for middle market investment sales. So what that means for the folks listening is effectively call it two to $100 million sales, non-institutional, although arguably above 40, $50 million are in the institutional space, but more focused on the private investor, the private owner. And the reason we've done that is that long before that, I noticed that there was this kind of private investor who was growing his portfolio along with the appreciation of the Toronto market. And so we expanded with, you know, I did some sales in Hamilton back in 2015, 2016, when I was last on the show, to now we sell buildings in Ottawa, KW, kind of all over, whereas we actually have a Collier's team that's very capable in KW and Ottawa that we partner with, but we follow our clients in building and land sales. So just kind of to wrap that up, specifically, we are focused on maximizing the value of real estate for middle market real estate owners, both in building and lands. So maybe we'll pick up where we left off and we definitely want to get into the kind of broader view of investment that you're working on, but maybe we'll just carry the thread from the previous episode for anybody who remembers back that far wants to go revisit it. Let's start with development land. It's, well, we're at the Land of Development Conference, so it's topical. And, you know, the big question in everybody's mind is, of course, what the current environment might be doing to land values. So maybe we'll just do a bit of a history lesson on development land and how the market's kind of shifted over over the last couple of years. I'm glad you asked that, Adam, because, you know, it's interesting. In the past two years, we've seen an appreciation and growth on both the volume and pricing side for development land we haven't seen really in many times and or rather in the last 20 years because specifically since I was last on the show in 2016 there's been one of the single greatest appreciation moments in development land history so to give you a little metrics to that because you're both bankers in 2020 and 2021 we saw a doubling of the volume of development land sales so last year in 2021 there was 7.9 billion in development land sales in the greater Toronto area. That, for the folks listening, is a 31% increase from 2019, which was our previous year's highs, previous year highs. And on top of that, it's over 500 transactions. So it kind of speaks to you the robust growth of the market that Toronto had. And what counts as development land? I mean, like obviously it's the big parcels. Are you talking, like, does it include single family parcels up north of Vaughan? Like or what, infill sites? Infill I know I've seen you market sites, those in the I past. Mean, yeah. Someone's buying a vacant retail building or retail street front. Does that count as land? Like, how do you kind of capture those numbers? Yeah, that's a good question, actually. So it includes both asset classes. So both single family homes and condos. We would call it ground-related development, which is homes, semi-detached. But does it include industrial offices, anything and everything? Or is it just zoned residential? So just zoned residential. So ICI land on top of that had a pretty credible year, which it was kind of hitting what I would consider highs as well, which was 13 billion for ICI land, which if you consider that in kind of the scale of what has traditionally been ICI land, like in 2011, I think it was like close to 1 billion. So there's been some drastic changes in what the numbers have changed kind of year over year. So you're talking on a dollar basis. What about on an acreage basis? I mean, I'm not even talking about per square foot buildable or what you think you can build, but just on a pure square foot of dirt. Is it still about the same amount? And we're just talking about just incredible appreciation of the value of 
a square foot of dirt? Yeah, that's that's also a good question because the rents have moved so drastically on the industrial side that this has caused the underlying land values obviously to change because as most probably your listeners understand here, land is really valued based on what you can build onto it. So if it's industrial, it's based on whatever you can sell the industrial condos for, whatever you can rent the building for, that increased revenue side on the building causes the value of the land to increase. So industrial land has gone from, and I still remember this in 2011, the industrial land market effectively was stopped at that point. And it didn't really restart again until 2016 because most landowners effectively sat on their land at $800,000 an acre. And so now in 2022, we see as high as 3 million an acre for some of these industrial land and even higher for specialty land, certain areas zoned, ready to go service. But that appreciation has happened really kind of doubled since 2018. Yeah, which is nuts. In that same time frame-ish, and I don't have the exact numbers, but don't let us stop you from uh, citing numbers. I will totally guess, yeah. (laughs) I'm making this up. Industrial rents were around six bucks per square foot, and they were for a really long time. And then now now all of a sudden we're hearing 20 bucks per square foot for what is effectively the same box. It's like specialty box stuff. But $6 a foot. was totally, you could do like six was everything, right? And and now, I mean, maybe it's 16 or 17 bucks for your 40 foot clear warehouse. But whatever it is, there's a quadrupling of rent. So in theory, or technically, I guess a quadrupling of land values kind of makes sense then. Yeah. Exactly. And I would know that like $20 a foot rents are for specialty buildings, super high clear height. You're seeing the average industrial rent in the Toronto area is just over $13 a square okay. foot. So still, even at that average, that's astronomically higher than $450 or whatever. <laughs> well, average it's, average a, it's a double, or, right? Yeah. From six to 13. Yeah. Like I'm rounding yeah. clearly. But then if you're talking about 800,000 bucks per acre to four, three million bucks per acre, you're still getting a greater land. Well, maybe it's, maybe it's a view on where rents can go. Can go well, exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly. No. And especially when you look at areas like New Jersey, where rents for like modern clear height industrial is like $30 a foot. So and that's USD. So we still have room to go. <laughs> well, even within Canada, you look at Edmonton Industrial before oil tanked, and there they were getting the rents that we're kind of seeing now in Toronto. So it's not unprecedented. It's not destructive to business models, can be sustained long term. Oh, absolutely. We don't have, as you know, <laughs> a lot of zone land, a lot of, we have land constraints here. So the industrial market is going to hit areas where they actually don't have growth to build as well. So the same thing that we're seeing on the residential side, that deficit of roughly 60,000 units a year for residential. We're seeing on the industrial side where vacancies are effectively under 1% in certain yeah, it's, areas. It's zero, really. Yeah. You can't find space. That's the, <laughs> that's the reality. I want to give Aaron a chance to bring up his favorite subjects. So we're talking about industrial. See, I wasn't going to go there oh, this no, time. I think, I think you got to. This is, this is an opportunity. Our regular you know, listeners are like, hey, that's enough, Aaron. <laughs> but Aaron's got a just a infatuation with the concept of multi-level industrial. So what would that do to land values? But now you're measuring multiple floors. Well, no, not just multi-level because multi-level is the reality. Like, True, I'm yeah. thinking more like mid-rise. Like no, well, like you talked about. <laughs> I can't remember now. I've had too many of these today, but too many discussions today. But buy your 12-story suburban office, and if you can rent it out at 25 bucks a foot for industrial, have 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 drones. 
flying out the top of it, dropping off packages at people's homes <laughs> in the neighborhood. Like that makes perfect sense, right? Like Matrix. Yeah. Well, <laughs> five years from now, I'm like, see, I told you so. <laughs> anyway, go back to you were talking about 2019 versus 2021, 2019. We're ignoring 2020 for obvious reasons. 2019 was historic levels. 2021 was astronomical in a comparison basis. Now we're June 7th today, 2022. Mm-hmm. Things are a little bit different today than they were December 31st, 2021. Yeah. Rates are up. Open a newspaper if you don't know. What are you seeing in the marketplace? Like you're now sitting there at tables. We've got buyers and sellers. There's got to be a little bit of a different conversation than you're experiencing 8, 10, 12 months ago. Yeah, 100% here. It's... Uh... It's changed pretty drastically. I mean, Q1 came out, we came out guns a-blazing again still. We were seeing some, call it weakness in the market in late Q4. The ability for buyers to push their pricing, they were kind of pulling back a little bit. You were getting priced to What asset type or is this uh, straight across the board Uh, for investment grade? This was, I would say, mostly development land. In building sales, though, you still had, as you know, Lenders willing to get fairly aggressive. I mean, your spreads were at all-time lows still effectively, right? But there was some sense that things were getting a little frothy. And then what happened is on the residential home side, you had things peak around February, I believe it was, for actual resale homes. And that caused some changes in how people were looking because it came on the backs of the, the rate hikes. And so what we saw specifically was Q1 pretty aggressive. But the end of Q1 and the start of Q2, you had sellers and buyers starting to kind of spread away that bid and ask. So you had really what I would call hesitancy on the buyer standpoint to get aggressive on their assumptions. They were coming back to saying, you know, we have to be conservative because we don't know where rates are going to go, right? So they were buying prudently and they were being a little more aggressive on how they would negotiate with sellers. Whereas in the past, sellers had a little more of the power. So you came out of the gate for development with almost $2.4 billion in land sales in Q1. That's pulled back now. And we'll probably see, I believe, in Q4, an annualized change of, I would say, from 2021, probably down 15, 20%. So, and that's value, not volume. That's volume. Volume, okay. okay. Yeah, volume, which is an indicator of like the health of the market, right? Because you look at what is the turnover the market, how many transactions happened. If in a normal year, you see $4 billion 10-year moving average and you have close to 400 transactions, then you know, you're going to see those numbers probably come off a little bit. Even though, I mean, 2021 was insane. It was 8 billion 500 transactions. Yeah, I mean, even on the lending community, we all had banner years to it. <laughs> yeah. just, it, just, it just happened, right? Like it was just- It was crazy. One yeah. of those things. And now, of course, with this inflationary environment, and interest rates rising. I mean, we're all now realizing that was a really fun year. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Even though we were all in our pajamas in our basements, didn't matter, right? <laughs> well, then to that point, I mean, you know, so many different aspects of real estate, this has kind of come up. The idea that, like, yes, conditions are not as favorable as they were, but you're coming off of just an absolute banner year, to quote Aaron a couple of minutes ago here. Is it that detrimental to the real estate community to be in the environment we're in? If you're getting three offers in a property versus 10, is it that detrimental to pricing? Just the brokers that are upset about it? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I don't think it's going to change that much in the effect of like the negativity in the market. But I do think that everyone is just being more prudent with their underwriting. And so you see buyers looking at the room, the downside risk and the stress and their underwriting sites to be 
more kind of call it for conservative assumptions. But the one good thing about, say, for example, development land, because this has been our topic so far, is you have a two to three year entitlement period. So you can kind of spread in that growth into the market. So if you believe we're going into some kind of recessionary environment, sorry, not to say the horrible word here, but <laughs> we don't use the R word on the podcast. <laughs> But you know, I was going to say, does that mean your equipment will get worse the next <laughs> yeah, time yeah, I'm yeah. in the podcast? Back to hunched over. Oh, dear. But really what we're seeing is not people with this massive negativity. They're just trying to be careful. And because there hasn't really changed that demand factor, it's just now your carrying costs are different. So they're making sense of that. And on top of that, the single family home detached home market has come off on the resale side, but condos are still continuing to move along. And I think this is a very general statement here, I'm going to say, but generally speaking, condos are a more affordable product. Apartments are easier to live in. And we're in a metropolitan here in Toronto. And now you see back when I was on your show, just shortly after I sold a large development site to Slate in Hamilton, they're now launching that site now, coupled with guys like Emblem, and Brad Lamb and there's Hamilton has become this secondary market that is also becoming vertically integrated. And as you know, Hamilton shut off the urban boundaries. So again, it's, you know, similar to the green belt. So I think what I'm trying to say here is that condos are going to become more of a factor moving forward in how to live in a more affordable product just in nature because they're smaller. So will that in essence cause a change for people not to want to live in that housing in the near term, probably, but in the long term, we're effectively a service-based industry. I'm selling land and buildings and developers and investors are buying buildings and land in order to provide a service for either their tenants or the people who live in that housing. You know, you're in good company earlier today here at the forum. We interviewed Benjamin Tall, of course, right? The chief economist of CIBC. And he had a fairly similar opinion that we are transitioning our culture to a, it's okay to be in your mid-30s with a kid or two kids and living in an apartment building. That is where we're going. Like The reality is that's the way most major urban centers exist. Like that's, That yeah. is just a normal thing. It is not normal that everybody has to have a home with three bedrooms and a finished basement and a two-car garage and a big backyard. Like That is unusual. Well, and Toronto has a disproportionate amount of that product within the downtown boundaries. And just the, as a country, we have more of this notion that everybody's got to have a single family home or their life in shambles. We have a greater proportion. It's over 60% of owners. Only when you look in Quebec, the proportion, it changes for renters to owners. And I personally really enjoy traveling to different cultures and looking at what type of housing, what type, how people live. Paris, one of my favorite cities in the world, is this incredibly urbanized area where you have six-story housing to eight-story housing back-to-back with no setbacks, with shadowing all around the city. And, you know, forbid, according to Toronto planning, that we have these no setback areas. So interesting, isn't it? But it makes for, yes, more constrained living. But because people are more constrained, it forces them to be outside of their homes Homes. more. Go to Tokyo. It's two o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday, or maybe not two o'clock, maybe midnight on a Tuesday. And the streets are packed because everybody lives in 300 square foot (laughs) apartments. And so they don't want to be at home. You got to be out. And it creates that vibrant environment, right? It does. So I think, and with sensitivity, obviously to some of the listeners, I'm sure thinking, well, wait a second, I don't want to live in that. 
And that's fine. We're going through this growth pattern where people are getting angry almost at that. Why would we live in this condo? Well, it's, you know, some people want to live in this, you know, the birth rates going down, people are having less kids, which is maybe another problem to talk about. But the fact of the matter is that people enjoy living in urban areas. They enjoy having less stuff and having more experiences. And this is coupled down with the type of product we're building, right? So again, going back to that service-based comment, again, the industry is really just a component to what the market wants. And so if the market wants more larger units, it'll probably happen. And we were just in a session where we were talking to a purpose-built rental, REIT, who's building in Brampton and Newmarket, the largest proportion of their units are two bedrooms. Whereas you see downtown Toronto, a larger proportion are one bedroom. So again, it's just a demand factor. What do people want? Jeremiah, we got a couple more minutes here. So I want to put a question that's always a little tougher, tougher to ask. It's a, the classic crystal ball question, which is difficult when everything's stable and everything makes sense. But we're, we're in a situation now where up is down and it's tough to really make sense of where we're headed. So all that being said, Aaron's already day stamped it. This is June 7th, 2022. Where are we going to be June 7th, 2023? Well, first, where are we going to be, where are we going to be June 8th, 2022? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they go from there. Yeah. yeah, that's a very good question. Obviously, I cannot predict the future. I go where my clients want me to go effectively. And, you know, I provide good service there. But I think personally, we are in a price discovery mode right now. And I've known a few deals I've heard happen off market, as few of my own, where you see pricing kind of come off where the aggressive highs were, right? So, but so far it's like five to 7%, you know, we're not significant here, but we're selling retail plazas and retail properties where the lending side has changed the cap rate. So we're in this cap rate decompression scenario, right? So we're maybe 50 basis points off some of our highs there. So what do I see happening? I see a scenario where in the next six months, and if you look at traditionally historical data, you'll notice that the real estate market moves you know, quite a bit slower than the equities, the stock market. And you see roughly a four to six month period where there's price discovery, right? Where it takes time for vendors and purchasers to really get back alignment. Exactly. Yeah. And especially in the commercial real estate market, we're not as efficient, right? It takes time to go find deals negotiate those deals, not like the stock market where it happens instantaneously. Well, and, and with real estate too, of course, when something dramatically negative happens, the immediate reaction, everybody kind of goes, pens down, I'll wait and see. So you have the period of time, everybody's right. just kind of sitting there staring at each other that eventually realize we got to do deals. We got back into it. So the lag can be quite significant before you have a accurately priced deal closing that confirms somebody's belief in the value of an asset That's under the right. current climate. So I guess like to answer your question specifically, I'm a numbers person. I like to follow data because you're able to understand exactly in the market where you are. You follow the velocity of the market, the volume over trans number of transactions helps you understand, okay, where are we as a relation to a healthy market, right? And I would say that in the next six months, we will see transaction volumes down roughly 40 to 50% off of last year highs. But I think we'll see the last quarter when things stabilize, or if they do, again, I don't know, but if they do stabilize, you'll see that pricing kind of move back up to 75% of 2021. So year over year, if you look back at our, our volume here, and you know, we look back at this data in a year from now, I would say effectively in 2021, you're going to see 
transaction volumes, probably at roughly, call it 20% of last year's highs. So will that happen? I don't know. But I just know that right now, everyone is trying to understand what is it the price that I want to sell and what is it the price I want to buy. And again, when we're doing this advisory work for our our owners, we're asking them questions, not based on monetary things. We're asking them, what are you looking to do with the capital? Where do you want to place it? And running backwards from what did that cost of capital could potentially do for them? And then what are their motivations? Because a lot of the people in these middle markets, they're family-owned real estate. They're people who have held for generations and they're looking to their next generation. They're looking to understand, should I refinance? Should I sell? What is my goal? So it's really important for any listeners out there to understand what is your motivation and what is your plan? Create a plan, work with guys like First National to effectively underwrite your portfolio and underwrite the value so you really can understand what is my price going to be today, potentially? How much money will I want in the future? And make an assumption on that. Because once you have that strategy of what you can do with your money moving forward, then all the things that are important, like family, friends, time, and maybe your operational business will come into light. So I'd say with that said, we're going to see the next six months, people are really going to dial down to their numbers and figure out what is most important to me and how will that pricing affect me? And do I need to go out in the market and create price discovery? And do I need to sell today or refinance or hold? And I think we're in a bit of a confusing time and people are going to start to reach out to advisors. They're going to reach out to people. They're going to source as much data as possible because people are worried that things could change negatively. But ultimately, I'm very long Toronto and I think our city is tremendous. And we have, as you've mentioned, Adam, so much space to grow. This massive yellow belt we have of single family homes allows us the incredible ability to build upwards and great cities like Hamilton and Guelph and Vaughan, how they're growing out. Markham, now Pickering is becoming something. Personally, one of my favorites is Brampton. So we have so much space to grow, incredible neighborhoods, communities. And I think all of this leads to, do people want to live somewhere? Do they want to invest in real estate in these areas? Do they want to put down their roots and stay here long-term? And I think overall, there's good news for the greater Golden Horseshoe in Toronto. Yeah, I mean, well said. I loved it. Um, I, I, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, me too. Let's go buy real estate. I, um, Matching I, Toronto I, tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, not a Leafs tattoo. No, right, no, Sorry. I'm getting a CN Tower on my arm. Yeah. No, but I, I totally agree. I mean, the reality is what's transpiring right now in the marketplace is, is ultimately temporary. Temporary being, I don't know, eight months, 12 months, 24 months, who knows? But the fundamentals, the underlying fundamentals of this city particularly Toronto, but I think Canada at large, for those of you that aren't from this neighborhood, are strong and we'll get back to to normal. And you know, let's not forget some of the other fundamentals of it's not just real estate economy here, right? There's whether it's education or health or finance, like there's lots of other things that contribute to the fundamentals of the city of Toronto, immigration that's coming on. There is lots of reasons to be optimistic. However, right now we've got 5% mortgage rates and high inflationary environment. So maybe it just pens down for a little bit of time until we get back going at it. Jeremiah will be part of the uh, price discovery process. He'll be out there making it happen. Then we'll know where we stand. We'll be more comfortable at that point. No, quite literally. 
Jeremiah, we are at a time. I appreciate you coming back. Hopefully, don't wait another six years before having you uh, back <laughs> on. I hopefully, be pleasantly surprised by the uh, increase in listenership too. You'll you'll, you'll hear right. it. now. It's yeah. sixty people listen yeah. to this. <laughs> Way more. Uh, at that point, you're going to have your own studio. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. We yeah. might, you know, we might a little downwards. Uh, what are you talking about? We rented bit. out the entire <laughs> conference just for yeah. this, right? <laughs> We want to thank the Real Estate Forums for hosting us here today at the Land of Development Conference. Uh, we want to thank First National for powering the podcast. And of course, most importantly, Jeremiah for coming on. Oh, thank you, yeah. Adam and Aaron. It's always a pleasure to come on. Stay tuned for the after show coming up next. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show where Aaron and I discuss the conversation that just took place. It's funny. I mean, Jeremiah is talking about land values now, the three million an acre. You know, I started out my career call years with Jeremiah. That's that's how I know him. We were both pretty new at the time, and I remember working with somebody at the time who had a nice piece of land out in Oakville, and he was trying to convince us it was worth seven hundred k an acre. And the team that I worked with was busy trying to convince him that it wasn't worth that much. And so the discussion range we were talking about, you call it five hundred. 700 an acre was the bounds we were operating in. And we you know, were deliberating quite a bit on what we thought it was worth. And this, that was a while ago. That was 12 or 11 years ago. But now to see it at 3 million, by any measure, that's a sharp increase upwards. Yeah. Well, it's so challenging right now to figure out where that, how long that go stays there, or if it stays there, or if it keeps rising. To keep having these conversations, it's curious in this environment. There seems to be a lot of, belief that it's temporary or short term, which is true. If you think about macro perspective, that it's only been, you know, hope, presumably inflation, rising interest rates, recession is temporary. This new cycle will start. Things will start to get better again. And so there seems to be a lot of optimism still, right? And Jeremiah certainly seemed very optimistic about what's going on, what's transpiring, and what will continue to transpire. Yeah, no, you captured it well at the end there. I thought that was uh, a very, very empowering speech as a, as a resident and real estate practitioner from Toronto. I like to hear it. I mean, like obviously, when we speak to a lot of people in real estate, we all hope it does well because our livelihood does depend on it. But when you hear smart people talk about why, there's a real, a real case I can buy into uh, intellectually too, not just with my heart. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, he did a great job <laughs> just covering all the different reasons why we should be optimistic. I'm not trying to dissuade anybody to think that we shouldn't be. I think he's <laughs> absolutely dead on. Yeah, I mean, trying to price industrial land at the time will be tough because you're talking about an asset class that was likely running with the smallest spread between interest rates and cap rates. You know, of the three asset classes that would get financed conventionally, probably you could even maybe include apartments in that mix too as the tightest spread. So therefore, you'd assume interest rates would have an outsized impact on them in a vacuum. And, you know, that's the very information. But everybody wants industrial. I mean, I, I just saw a report out the other day from one of the banks and it goes, apartments and industrial, the asset class that everybody wants. It's like, well, yes, that's... That's been the blaring headline for uh, at least two years straight now in the pandemic, certainly, and prior. So it's not not a big news flash, but sustained intense demand can offset a lot of headwinds. You know, I think the industrial is going to cruise through this just fine and into the next cycle, probably stronger than ever. Well, yeah, you know what? I mean, we're end of Q2, right? So Q2 REIT reporting is coming out. I just saw like a REIT review basically previewing what they'd anticipate for the Q2 reporting for the REITs. And it was... Apartments industrial, they're expecting strong revenue growth, slight operational expense increases, but to be outdone by the revenue growth because 
industrial rents and apartment rents continue to have extreme tailwinds. Yeah. It's, so yeah. that makes sense. Let's just get, skate everything through, right? No matter what. And those two asset classes, for sure. <laughs> I like that we can boil it down to just correct all wrongs. <laughs> of course, yeah. there's, a, there's a million dials on the dashboard when you're watching real estate. But yeah, I know. I, I believe what he's selling. Yeah, me too. Anyway, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to First National Power, the podcast. Until next time, talk to you then. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.